Excellent. Sorry to break in. It sounds lovely down here, the sound of uh, the church in Murma. It sounds really nice. Well, welcome again. I'm Andrew Brand. I'm on the leadership team here at King's Church. And a very, very warm welcome to all of you, especially if you are visiting. We've just started a new series called Unexpected. The first of those was last week where we looked at Jesus' family background. And what we're doing through this series is focusing on the unexpected aspects of God becoming a man and being born at Christmas time. And this week we're going to look at the unexpected names of this great king that was promised last week, that we looked at last week. So today we're going to look at uh, a very well-known passage, a, a fantastic passage in Matthew's Gospel, where uh, Joseph has, has basically engaged to Mary, and uh, she becomes pregnant without his knowledge, which, which was obviously a terrible blow to him, as you can imagine. Uh, and an angel appears to him in a dream and says to him, don't, look, don't be frightened, this is, you know, this is of God, you must go ahead and, and continue. And just before I get into the passage, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things, because what I don't want to do today is, is sort of talk technical about words like betrothed and so on. So let me just talk briefly before we get to the passage about some of the aspects in it, so that once we're in the passage, we can really look at those two names, which is what we're going to be focusing on, uh, that Jesus was going to be called this morning. And so it, back in those days, it, they had a sort of halfway house between being engaged and uh, being married, which was called being betrothed. And so if you were betrothed to someone, it was, it was a legal contract. You would get engaged, as we do in our culture, and then at the right time you'd become betrothed. And you weren't married at that point, but if you did want to break off the relationship, there would be a legal implication. So it, it, was, it was like being married in many respects, but it wasn't quite the marriage. And then you'd have a marriage, uh, a week-long marriage often, you know, partying and so on for, for a week, and they, they took all that kind of thing very seriously. Uh, and then you were finally married. So for Joseph to find that his, his fiancée is pregnant without his knowledge, as we'll see shortly in the passage, uh, would have been absolutely horrendous, really, really awful for him. And then uh, he's told in a dream by an angel that he's to call the child, not only is he to go ahead and, and marry Mary, but he's to call the child that she will have Jesus, which means God saves. And then he's also told that this child will become known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when we come to the passage, don't be confused by seemingly him being told to give Jesus two names. Jesus was called Jesus, which is the God saves part. But the angel is telling him that he will become known as God with us. And as we go through Matthew this morning, that will become very apparent because God is with us. And when I was preparing, I was very struck by those two aspects of what it is for God to become a man and to be with us and to save us. And there are many analogies that we can think of in, in everyday life. The one that was most prominent in my mind was sometimes you hear amazing rescues off mountainsides where a mountaineer has become disoriented either through altitude sickness or a sudden change in the weather and has to be saved from literally walking off a ledge. You know, these stories do happen. He's about to walk off a ledge and someone has to kind of grab them and pull them back and then can't just leave them there because of this disorientation they're experiencing. And so it has to stay with that person until they can either, until either the, the weather clears or they can be properly dealt with. And I was very struck by those two aspects uh, in the passage where God is with us and God saves us. So what I'll do, let's, let's read the passage now and we'll, we'll get it up on the screen. It's Matthew, if you're following in your Bible, it's Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing passage of scripture. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you save us. And thank you that you speak to us. Thank you, Lord, for that angel appearing in the dream to Joseph and telling him very clearly what he should do and just quietening his fear as to what his future would hold. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now as we go through this, please. Amen. So, as I was saying before we read the passage, it did strike me that there were some parallels between God becoming a man and saving us and staying with us and the kind of accounts you sometimes read about of mountain rescues. And before I, before I share one with you, uh, I just want to make it quite clear that I'm not a mountaineer at all. I'm really not. I don't like sport of any sort, actually, which is a, dis- a disadvantage for a preacher, actually, because often you can get great analogies from the sporting world, but I don't know of any. And I'm certainly not a mountaineer. But um, So before I come on to this great story of daring rescue, let me tell you about a time when I was staying at uh, in Fort William with an aunt of mine who lives up in Scotland. Um, And you'll know Fort William is the the home of of Ben Nevis, the largest, tallest mountain in Britain. Uh, And in fact, from her window, you could see this beautiful mountain range, probably six or seven miles away from her house. Some smaller ones, and then this sort of big one, Ben Nevis. And uh, it was August time, I was about 22. And... um, one, one, one morning, the, the clouds broke and the sun came out, which hadn't happened up until that point. It had rained every single day uh, until that point. So I said to her, look, what I'll do is go and climb one of those mountains. Which one would you recommend? And she said, well, I think the small one, the nearest one you can see, that would be a good one for you to try. So I got myself decked out in um, trainers and shorts and a T-shirt and um, a, a sort of lightweight summer jumper and walked the three miles to this mountain. And as I got there, I realized, this mountain is so insignificant, I don't even know its name, but I do know the name of that one over there. It's called Ben Nevis. And what sort of story will it be to my friends when I say I climbed this little mountain in Scotland, whose name I can't recall, compared to I climbed Ben Nevis? So clearly the thing to do was to walk another four miles to Ben Nevis, decked out as I was in appropriate clothing. (laughs) So um, it's not as hard as it might sound. I don't want to make this sound like a heroic journey, because it really wasn't. Ben Nevis is a great mountain, if any of you have climbed it. It's more a series of sort of steep walks with grass. It's actually very pleasant, and then plateaus, and then another steep walk. So up I went. Um, And not only am I I not a mountaineer, I also don't know too much about the Scottish language. At one point, I I came round a bend to a beautiful lake. It really was scenic. And I stopped and looked at it for a while, and then carried on round the next bend, at which point I came across a man walking kind of across, looking a little bit lost, who asked me if I'd seen a lock. 
and I have seen locks in London on the canals. You get lots of locks. They are a mechanism to allow canals to go up and down hills, very gradual inclines, so that the boat can, can continue on its journey. I thought locks, on, I mean, how many locks would you need on a mountain for the canal? They'd be so close together that the boat would be so small as to be almost unusable. So anyway, I hadn't seen a lock. No, I haven't, sorry, I have not seen a lock. And continued on my way, you know, the mountaineer and his trainers and shorts. And um, then I realised shortly afterwards, actually, I had seen a lock. It was that very large lake, which I'd unwittingly not pointed the man towards. So I carried on walking up to the top. And at that very moment, when I reached what turned out to be near the summit, uh, the weather changed in exactly the way people had warned me it can do at the top of mountains like Ben Nevis. And it became very, very cold. And a cloud basically had come across the top. And you couldn't see anything at all. And uh, I was a bit shivery. And um, luckily, I found a small hut made of corrugated iron lined with polystyrene, which I was able to sit in for about 30 minutes until the cloud cleared again. So it wasn't a dramatic story. I don't want to kind of you know, keep you on suspense. It wasn't dramatic. It was all fine. But it was kind of weird that I really was in whiteness. And I was very cold. And had I not found this small corrugated iron hut, who knows what might have happened. <laughs> so I came out of the hut. The, the, the weather cleared. It was a beautiful, sunny, sunny day again. And I came down and uh, walked the seven miles back to my very cross aunt's house. Uh, very cross, because in those days there were mo no mobile phones. Right? So as far as she was concerned, I'd climbed up a small hillock in the morning. And, you know, come seven, come eight, come nine o'clock, where was he? So she was very cross. But, uh, I mean, it all's fine now. You know, all <laughs> I'd say literally 20 years later we made up and it's all fine now. Um, but that does lead me on to what I was getting at earlier. You do get these amazing stories, like mine but times a thousand, where someone has gone up a mountain like Everest and becomes completely disoriented and needs rescuing and saving. And, I mean, there are many you could choose from. Here's one that I would like to share with you about a man called Lincoln Hall. Now, I don't know if he's a famous mountaineer. He is a mountaineer. I don't know if he's a famous mountaineer because I'm not a mountaineer. As I said earlier, I know nothing about mountaineering. But if he is famous, you'll recognize his character. And if he isn't, it's still a great story. Mountaineer Lincoln Hall was given up for dead when he developed altitude sickness on the way down from the summit of Everest. His, com his companions waited with him for two hours on the mountain, but he wasn't breathing and he had no pulse. And the decision was made to leave his body there. As news went down the mountain that Lincoln Hall was dead, he woke up. This does have a happy ending, just so you know, right? When interviewed afterwards, he said, the Sherpas had let me lie there for two hours, thinking I was dead. And so they took my pack, which had useful things in it, like water and clothing, and all sorts of practical things. I became aware that I was going to die. However, the next morning, Lincoln Hall was found still alive by a team of mountaineers making a summit attempt. So this is Everest. You know, people plan for weeks or months to do the, the summit attempt. And describing the scene, one of the rescuers said, sitting to our left, we suddenly became aware, about two feet from a 10,000-foot drop, of a man, not dead, but sitting cross-legged, in the process of changing his shirt. <laughs> so a this guy was seriously delu you know, deluded because of the altitude sickness. A rescue effort then swung into action. The team abandoned their summit attempt to stay with Lincoln Hall, who was badly frostbitten and delusional from altitude sickness. A team of Sherpas were summoned from base camp, and Lincoln Hall was brought down the mountain. His survival and rescue on the mountain was especially poignant due to the death days earlier of climber David Sharp. 
it was observed that no attempt was made to rescue David Sharp, although it was apparent that, though unconscious, he was still alive while other climbers passed him and continued on their own ascents. So it's not a given that people are going to stop and help you. It really isn't on that mountain. But in the case of Lincoln Hall's case, they did stop. They saved him from falling, and they stayed with him. And one of Lincoln Hall's rescuers summed things up nicely when reflecting on his team abandoning their summit attempt, because, of course, that was then written off, by saying, the summit is still there, and we can go back, but Lincoln Hall only has one life. And there are a couple of things, if we just get that up on the screen, a couple of things that really jumped out at me. The first of which is that they saved him from, I would say, certain death. You know, you can't fall 10,000 feet on Everest without dying. So they saved him from that. And secondly, they then... They stayed with him. They abandoned their own attempt to, to conquer Everest and stayed with him, which ensured his survival. Now, that has obvious parallels with the passage we just read, where God saves us and then stays with us. And if you are taking notes this morning, I've called this, uh, I've called this morning the unexpected names of the king. And Matthew makes it quite clear from the outset that this king saves us and then stays with us. So I want to focus first on what Matthew wants us to know about Emmanuel. Matthew is absolutely clear that this is God with us. The long-promised king is now with us, genuinely with us, to rescue us and stay with us through all the challenges that, that life, life brings. And how wonderful it was for Joseph to see that immediately, that God was with him through this dream where God had sent an angel to speak to him about what he should do. And actually, angels are sort of synonymous with Christmas. There are lots of angels in the Christmas story. There's that one in Joseph's dream. There's the angel that appears to Mary to tell her that she's going to have a child, the angel Gabriel. And then when Jesus is born, there are loads of angels that sing the amazing news of his birth to the shepherds on the hillside. And I don't know about you, but our house is also full of angels at the moment. As we, we gear up for Christmas and put the decorations out, you start seeing angels in strategic places around the house. And uh, I'm very fortunate having, well, three children, but two girls who are absolutely mad on Christmas. Uh, my eldest daughter has a wonderful collection of Christmas jumpers, which are like normal jumpers, but Christmassy. And uh, when she went off to university earlier, uh, well, she's just back from her first term. So when she was off at university her first term, she sent us a card in October, which was a Christmas card. So <laughs> we really have a double helping of Christmas in our house. And uh, we've got Christmas songs on, on, the, on the Spotify playlist, on, on repeat. Um, my favourite is probably Do They Know It's Christmas, which um, is a useful one to claim as my favourite because I've done a bit of research here. It's been released, I think, at least four times. So I can, I can pitch it at your generation, right? So in, in 1984... Those of us who remember that will remember Paul Young as doing that first line. Paul Young. Those of us who remember the 1989 version will remember Kylie Minogue doing that first line. All right, we're getting younger. as the mmms. I can hear mmm, and they're getting younger. Um, in the 2004 version, we have Chris Martin of Coldplay singing that first line. Mmm, a few mmms, yeah, from the real youngsters. And then I doubt I'm going to get a mmm here. For, well, I might, but in the 2014 version... Mmm. <laughs> that was One Direction, a band called One Direction. Um, I don't know if that was One Direction with Zane or without Zane. So a little bit of local knowledge there, because they had someone called Zane with them. So what was that first line? What line am I referring to that all these singers sung? Well, it's this. It's Christmas time, and there's no need to be afraid. 
Right? That line was far truer than the writers of that song ever knew. It is Christmas time, and there is no need to be afraid. But the reason there's no need to be afraid is because God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And that dream that Joseph had, the angel comes to him and says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So God knows when we're frightened. God knows when we're, we have fear. And fear can be really you know, like a gripping force on us. It's not, it's not a light thing to be frightened of something, especially as adults where there is no, there's no other solution other than us and God. As adults, to feel fear, to feel anxiety, it is something that's really relevant and really difficult to deal with. But the Bible is very, very helpful on how we can deal with anxiety and fear. And it's mostly because of God being with us that we're able to know that he's able to deal with our fear. And this isn't just the 33 years that Jesus was physically with us on earth. Jesus said when he left to go back to heaven, I leave you my spirit. So it's not, it's not as if he, he's still with us in spirit as, as, as a sort of famous person like Julius Caesar might still be amongst us or Napoleon or, or Churchill, people whose memories live on. It's not that at all. It's his Holy Spirit, which is part of God himself. His Holy Spirit comes and lives with us. And it's that that makes it real for us today, in the same way that it made it real for Joseph and Mary at the time of his actual birth. Now Joseph, as I said, was was really frightened, and the angel had to say to him, do not fear. And I don't know if you're frightened about anything at the moment. I know I've I've experienced fear as as an adult. Uh, probably the last time I was genuinely frightened for a long period of time was when I lost my job in 2009. I was out of work for eight months, and although at the time the the first um, thing uppermost in my mind was my fear, actually it was a time when I discovered God was with me, and I know that God is with us all the time. We all know that because we read it in the Bible. But when you enter periods of fear and anxiety where you've almost got no choice but to throw yourself on God, that's when you become aware that he's there. It's, I don't think it's that he suddenly turns up. I think it's he's with us all the time, but we just don't take the focus, because we don't need to, to realize his presence with us. And I know I've probably shared this uh, with some of you in, in life group when I, when I lost my job, but I didn't go into too much detail because I didn't want to... Uh, appear as if I was preaching, but I am preaching now, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about it now, so I think I'm forgiven if I repeat things I've already said, but um, it was a really frightening time, and I, when I tell this story, I don't want you to think that the main problem was not having a job, it wasn't, the main benefit for that period was knowing God with me, but it came through not having a job, all right, so this is not a bad story, it's a really, really good story, but it was at the end of 2008 that the firm I worked for had got through, I thought, the redundancy program that most firms in the city were doing as a result of the credit crunch. So out of 600 people, they got rid of 90. And uh, I said to Rachel, I said to my wife over, over Christmas, uh, I think now could be the time to press start on that loft conversion that we had put on hold, because I don't think I'm going to lose my job. I think it's done. I think the firm has gone through the redundancy program. Um, so let's dig out those plans, uh, which we'd already received planning permission for. Let's get the architects and the builders, and let's go. So January 2009, we, um, we had the builders come in, and they put the scaffolding up and took the roof off. Um, February 2009, about three weeks later, uh, I went into a, a room at work, it was a Wednesday, and they said, Friday will be your last day here. So I came home, I said to Rachel, I can't even say, at least we've got a roof over our heads, because we haven't. We really haven't, and thank you for laughing, those of you who I've told that joke to before, I really do appreciate that. 
So what then began was a real roller coaster. It was a real roller coaster. We, um, I was praying with some people from, from Life Group, a couple of guys at Life Group, and one of them said to me, I really feel that God's saying to you, I have something for you just around the corner, which I took as a great encouragement that God would give me something to do soon. The phrase just around the corner to me meant something soon. And the other guy I was praying with at the time, there were three of us in a little, little prayer trio, um, said, have you considered doing something academic? Well, I hadn't. I worked in the city in risk management for a, an asset management firm. I hadn't done anything academic. But within two days of that prayer time, I got a call from someone who I still didn't, I still don't know how they got my name, but they phoned me and said that an examination body in the city was just about to launch a new exam, and would I write the textbook for this exam? I said, absolutely, I would. Um, And then I bumped into the husband of a friend of my wife's in Kingston, who said, I've got um, a spare desk at an office I'm renting at the moment in Villiers Road near the dump. Um, If you ever want to use that spare desk... Now, I don't know why he offered that to me, because I didn't have any work at the time. He said, you can come and use that desk if you like. So everything, as I lost control of my life and threw myself on God, everything just started happening without my, without my say-so. It was as if things were being done for me or to me. It was amazing. So I went to look at this office that I'd just been offered because I couldn't write a book at home on a laptop. You, you can't. It was 65,000 words, right? So you can't use a laptop. You need two screens so you can do your research on the internet and write it on this screen. I went to look at this office just a few days later. And who should be visiting someone else? in that office, but the guy I was praying with at Life Group. It was just uncanny. It, we were both a bit spine-tingled. I mean, I said, what are you doing here? He said to me, what are you doing here? I said, well, I've been offered to come and work here temporarily. Well, I write a book that I've just been offered since we prayed two days ago about doing something academic round the corner. It was unbelievable. It, it really was. And for him, as well as me, the faith boost that that gave us was just incredible. And really, that single event kept me going over the next several months, which were really hard. They were really hard. I'm not going to pretend it was fun at the time, because it wasn't. But God was really with me. Another, just a couple of other things. Um, I had a dream one, one night. Uh, again, every day was the same for me during that period of just calling on God the whole time. Please talk to me. Please speak to me. Where are you? I really need you. Please give me a job. But mostly I got to the point of almost stopping praying for a job because I thought I wasn't going to get another job. All the firms were still laying people off over that, over that summer. So I was focusing much more on where are you? I want you, God. If I'm going to lose my house, because I couldn't sell my house, right? It didn't have a roof on it. If I'm going to lose my house, <laughs> I want you. That's what I want. And God, I had this amazing dream one night. I was outside this large mansion and I met Jesus just outside the house. And for some reason, I had to go into the house. I don't know why, but I had to go in. And I said, look, I've just got to go in here. Will you wait for me? He said, yeah, I will wait for you. And I said to him just before I went in, when I pray to you, can you hear me? And he said, yes. And then I woke up. But it was the most vivid thing. It stayed with me. Well, it's still with me now. It stayed with me for so long that when I pray to him, he hears me. Same, it's an obvious statement. Of course he hears us. That's why we pray. But to be told that in such a real way. And a few weeks after that, I was uh, plodding away with this book um, in this office. And uh, I was on my own one afternoon. No one else was there. I was working 20 hours a day or something to get this deadline done. And um, I was very bored. I was clicking on Spotify and just following the links and... Um, saw a link saying Galatians or something, rather clicked on that, and up popped a 
a video blogger talking about Galatians. It was utterly irrelevant to me. I, I was still in the mode of just, where's God? Maybe I can find God here. So I clicked on that because it said Galatians. But he started talking about something completely um, biblically relevant, but not of any interest to me. Um, and he had a strange name. It was Bishop, but spelt with a one and a five instead of the I, and he has a very trendy kind of blogger type name. But anyway, he started talking, and for three or four minutes, I sort of lost concentration, started spinning around on the chair or whatever I was doing. And, um, and then suddenly, and I'm going to read this to you, because suddenly... Suddenly I heard something that, that really took my, took my attention. I'd love, to play, I'd love to play you um, the video, but uh, it would look a bit odd on the screen behind me. Because suddenly I heard his voice saying to me, in this kind of American drawl, God is talking to you. He's letting you know, like Andrew, hey, I know what you're going through. Strive to be like me, Andrew. Don't strive to be like this world, because you're just setting yourself up for failure. And I almost fell off that chair when I heard him speaking to me like that. It was really freaky, and I know I've played it to some of you and my wife endlessly. But um, it really was unbelievable. The guy, he turned out to be called Andrew, but you wouldn't know that from this trendy bishop name that he called himself on his blog. And so God was speaking to me with my name. And as I said at the beginning, it's not that I was looking for a job and that's what God was going to give me. It's that suddenly I was aware of the reality of God with us all the time, all the time. It's absolutely amazing. And to cut a long story short, which I will now do, um, the book was then published and the publishers were just around the corner from the office where I had an interview for the job I now do. And it published on the day of that interview. So I was able to swing by, get the book, still in its cellophane, go to the interview, which was then basically leafing through this book, and then they gave me the job. So it was literally losing all control, and then God being with me and just making it happen for me. I'm so grateful to him. So, so grateful to him. And, and you know, the, the Bible is, is very clear about very clear about anxiety and worry. On, on one hand, it can sound quite harsh. You know, it's got very clear statements like, do not be anxious. There are other statements like, cast your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. So that, that's a more sort of, that's a kinder sounding one. But ultimately, the Bible is pretty clear that we, we are not to worry. And Jesus himself, uh, later in Matthew, which we'll just get up on the screen here, Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink. Yeah, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So how can we do this? I want to get really practical here. One thing the Bible tells us to do is to take every thought captive. And that's a very helpful passage as well. Take every thought captive. Don't let yourself spiral down into that worry of trying to work out the future through logic. You can't do that. Our brains aren't designed to tell the future. So if we're trying to use logic to fix things that haven't yet happened, it's just not going to work. The temptation is to worry and worry and worry, but just don't. So take every thought captive. That's a really important biblical principle. And secondly, in terms of being practical, 
Find verses that mean something to you, that talk about anxiety or fear, and learn them off by heart. And you can say them to yourself. This is not a mantra where you're trying to convince yourself of something that isn't true. This is getting yourself in line with the fact that God is with you, and God tells you not to worry. So everything you can do to help yourself get in line with that is about stepping into reality. And when you're in reality, when you're in truth, things are much better for you as a Christian. Things work better because you're then in God's mainstream. So I'll give you a start of a 10 if you are, if you are taking notes. There's a, a great verse in Philippians, chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So that's one that I would have written up, and I've learned it, and it really is true, and it really is helpful when I'm worrying about things or frightened about things. Again, this isn't trying to pretend that God's with us. It's living in the light of the fact that he is with us. And he's with us through his spirit. So what do we mean by that, that he's with us through his spirit? Because that's very important as well. It's not just a phrase that we throw out lightly. If we're saying that this is real life and God is really with us through his spirit, what does that actually mean? Let's just look at what the Bible tells us very briefly about what it means. So in John's gospel and also in Acts, Jesus tells his followers that he needs to go so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper here. He says to them, Now I am going to him who sent me. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So that's actually a doing word. Power enables you to do and be different. So how does that happen? Again, there's some clarity brought to this later in Acts, where we're shown what happened to the Christians once Jesus went back to heaven. And in Acts chapter 8, there's an excellent account of how people would lay hands on believers and they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll just read that to you now. When the, when the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. There's no ritual involved. You ask someone, would you lay hands on me that I might receive the Holy Spirit? Or you say to someone, may I lay hands on you that you might receive the Holy Spirit? On another occasion, Paul came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And actually, Paul later wrote a letter to that same church in Ephesus, and we can read what he wrote to them in in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul reminds them to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's using what's called a continuous present. He's saying, be continued to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-off event. It's something that we need to keep on doing. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's actively seek a continual refilling. Let's actively seek more of Jesus with us, more of Emmanuel. I could ask yourselves, when did you last ask someone to pray for you, to be filled or refilled with the Holy Spirit? I know for me it's something I need to do more often. It's something I let let lapse. I sometimes go for a long time before asking for someone, would you specifically pray for me to be filled again with the Holy Spirit? So 
look, we've seen that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, and we've seen that that's true all the time. It just sometimes takes a real knock from our comfort zone for us to become truly aware of it. But it is always true. But there's better news still than that, and that is that God saves us. He's not just with us, but he saves us. So that ledge that the guy was about to fall off, saved from that certain death, God does that to us too. And that was why they wanted to call his name Jesus. That's why they were told to call his name Jesus, which means he will save his people from their sins. And again, Matthew's very clear that this king we looked at last week is God with us, and he's God who saves us. What does it mean for God to save us? Well, going right back, God designed things so that we would be in continual communion with him. When he made us, we were part of his creation. The rest of his creation he called good, and us he called very good. There was something very special for God when he made us. And so how heartbreaking it must have been when we as a, as a race turned our, our back on him and decided that we could do things better ourselves. And it had always been part of God's plan that he would become one of us and save us from our sin. Sin is what the Bible calls those aspects of ourselves that block us from God. It's things we choose to do ourselves where we believe we can make a better job of running our lives than God could make of running our lives. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And sin creates a barrier between us and God. And what God does is simply let us get on with it. It's a tragedy, but that's what he does. He lets us get on with it. And so as we go through life, continually rejecting him and face death and then go into an eternal death without him, that's our destiny. Unless God himself steps in, as he says he will do, to save us from that. And this is where Christianity differs so radically from every other world religion or philosophy. It's commonplace to be told, try your hardest, do, do your best, grin and bear it, be stoical. These are all very worldly approaches to dealing with sin and dealing with the problems that humans experience and cause in the world. But Christianity is utterly different. God says, you need to be saved, and then God says, and I will save you. God becomes one of us and dies on the cross, And that death of Jesus pays the price for our sin. For those who are willing to follow God, for those who choose God, that pays the price for your sin. So instead of going through life and then dying and continuing in in eternal death without God, you are saved by God. God stays with you. You experience physical death, but then you move into eternal life. And so for God to tell us we need, need to be saved and then go on to say, and I will save you, is so incredibly kind and so incredibly loving that really the only response to that, once we grasp it, is to just say, thank you, Lord. I don't understand it, but I thank you. I thank you so much. And that means that we have forgiveness available to us. All the things we've done wrong, God forgives us. And guilt can be a terrible burden as well. I said earlier that fear can sometimes hold us back. Guilt also And there are probably two types of guilt. There is a kind of guilt where you've done something against someone. You know what you've done. You probably just need to make it right and say sorry. But there's another form of guilt, which is a sort of pervasive feeling that we often experience where we can't quite work out why we're feeling it. And once you're into that sort of guilt, that often feels like a real trap. There's no obvious way out. And of course, what we're experiencing there is just a general rebellion against God. When we rebel against God, simply by not not following his way, his best way for our lives, we will experience that feeling of guilt. 
And the good news, the good news is that Jesus saved us from that. We simply need to say we're sorry. We just tell God we're so, so sorry. We want to follow him. And that guilt is removed from us. It's taken away from us. We're free from it. It's really, really good news. We receive a new start and a completely new heart and a feeling of being clean, which is so so liberating. It enables us to be truly transparent with ourselves and with others around us. It transforms every aspect of our lives, including the way we relate to others. So, so let's, let's just take stock and see what Matthew's told us so far. He's got this king who's become a human, Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know that this king, Jesus, saves us from our sins and is with us forever. So let's get really practical now. How does this help us at Christmas time? How does it help us over the next few days and weeks as we enter the the Christmas season? Well, it means that quite apart from huge life events, important though they are, it means that God's with us in the smallest of things, the tiny things, the stresses and strains of preparing for Christmas. God's with us. Don't lose sight of that fact. At that moment of stress on Christmas Day, you can simply say, Jesus, I don't know how to deal with this situation. Please help me. And he's there with you right away. If you don't yet know him yet, if you don't yet know him as your, as your friend and your saviour, then just get to know him by talking to him. There's nothing to stop you doing that. He loves to answer prayer. Just start speaking to him. Tell him what you're finding difficult. Ask for his help. And right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, in fact, the very last line in Matthew, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we're right back now from where we started, right at the beginning, on top of a mountain. But this time, a much warmer mountain, a much sunnier mountain, where Jesus appears to his disciples and says to them, that he is going to be with them forever. So I'll read that to you. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here they are on this mountain, with Jesus telling them, I am with you always to the end of the age. And if we just flick forward one more, One more slide. The last words in Matthew's Gospel. The very last words in Matthew's Gospel. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And those words were spoken by Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the king who saves us and the king who stays with us. It's wonderful. It's true. He's with us and he saves us. Wonderful. I wonder if I could ask the band to come up. And... Yeah, let me just pray for us, and then it'd be just wonderful to, to worship this King who saves us and who's with us. Lord God, thank you so much that you are the King. Thank you, Lord God, that you were born as a man, born as a baby, one of us, born into humanity. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your presence with us, through your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're here with us right now. Thank you that you save us and you love us. Amen.